Well, good morning, saints. Welcome. Uh, we talked about what a saint is last week. We, we started this new uh, sermon series in the book of Ephesians, and we said that saints is translated from the word hagios, which just means holy one, and that every Christian is considered a saint. And it's because sainthood is a gift. It's a gift given to us by God through what Christ has done for us on the cross. When we receive that gift by faith, we become a saint. So the first day, if you're a Christian, the first day you were a Christian, you were considered a saint, a holy one, by the grace of God. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Ephesians, wants saints to understand who they are, and then based on that identity, how to live. And so the first part of the book is a lot about who we are, and the second half of the book is how we live. Uh, That said, this kind of opening uh, paragraph, which is not even a paragraph, it's like one sentence. I don't know if you noticed that, that uh, verses 3 to 14 (laughs) is one long, tangled sentence. Um, So we're going to do our best to, uh, to, to untangle this. But you see already... Um, a set of beliefs and a behavior that Paul is putting forth in this uh, passage. That uh, part of saintly behavior is blessing God. Now that might sound strange, blessing God. Like how do you bless God who is the source of everything and needs nothing? What, what, what would that even mean? But this is indeed what Paul is doing here at the beginning of that verse. He's blessing uh, God. And so we want to talk about what, what, what does that mean? What does it mean to bless God? And what belief would actually lead us to do that? Because this is what this one big long sentence is about. The beliefs that lead to the blessing of God. So the main idea or the thesis statement, you might say, of this long sentence is Ephesians 1, verse 3. And and I hope you'll follow along uh, in your Bibles there uh, where he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So this is the main idea. Uh, Paul's saying, I bless you, God who has blessed us. And so whatever this blessing is that has been given to saints is worthy of having us bless him back. What Paul's writing here is sometimes called a a doxology, which just means the seeing or the study of the glory of God. So he is showing us how good and glorious God is and then calling us to respond to that by blessing God. And that this is the ultimate purpose of every saint, is to bless God. Now, you may be saying, I don't know if I'm up to the task of blessing God this morning, not feeling much doxology welling up in my heart. I maybe don't know God at all, or I do know God, but I currently feel distant from God, or I'm frustrated with God. Or I'm angry with God. Or I've been angry with God so long, I'm now bitter with God. Or perhaps just a nebulous kind of numbness toward God that's hard to even uh, explain. 
In these cases, we're tempted to go through religious motions, check, check the boxes, go to church, read the Bible, say a prayer, and thinking that will solve it. Uh, or, for some, just give up on God altogether. But here, Paul is teaching us what to do when we don't feel like blessing God. That coming into contact yet again in a fresh way of the blessings that God has given us, that causes us to be able to bless God. And if we're in that state, everything else is going to follow. Any other morality or repentance from sin or any any kind of other behaviors, those are going to follow naturally from a person's heart that is blessing the God who has blessed them. So for us saints in training, uh, we have the opportunity to dig into the ultimate blessings from God in this passage. I want you to first notice that Paul's stoking the, this fire in our hearts to bless God, first by starting to talk about who God is, not even what he's done yet in terms of blessing us. He presents him as the triune God, the God we read about in the Bible, God who is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. One God, three persons. Now, God's identity is indeed glorious, but Paul's showing the, 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 the identity of God to help us understand even better the blessings that God is giving us. His nature is tightly knit to how he functions in our lives and in the cosmos as a whole. Notice that God the Father is blessing his saints through the Son and by the Spirit. You say, well, where, where does he talk about the Spirit? Well, even in verse 3, he talks about, quote, spiritual blessings. You see that phrase, spiritual blessings, you should think, ah, blessings that are being brought about by the Holy Spirit. They're being applied by the Holy Spirit. Now, <clears throat> what, what we see in, in the rest of this long sentence is him telling us what the Father has done, what the Son has done, and what the Spirit has done. So again, it's very tied to who God is, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And so as we look at each person of the Trinity and what each person has done for us, we have this understanding of the blessings that God has given us. And then that will stoke the fire in our own hearts to bless God back. Um, the, the, the first person of the Trinity that is really focused in on is the Father. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So the first blessing that is mentioned is that God the Father has adopted us. He's adopted us. Uh, uses other words in addition to adoption. He says he chose us. He predestined us. And then he even clarifies that by saying that he did it as an act of his will. Right? It was a willful choosing. It was a willful predestinating. It was a willful adopting. Now, this adoption picture is very powerful uh, in understanding the blessing that's been given to us by God the Father. 
When you adopt a child, you're making a willful choice to bring that child in relationship to the parent and into the family, right? It's a two, two for one, right? You get to be a child of a parent and you get to be a part of a family. When you have a child by natural means, you don't really choose them. <laughs> you have no idea what they're going to be like. And so you can't send them back, right? Uh, it's not like adoption. Adopting families know what they're getting into. Now, part of this depends on the age of the child, but usually they, they meet the child. The child comes over for maybe a, a couple of overnights. Perhaps they foster the child for a few months, maybe even a year. And then they willfully choose and say, I want to adopt this child. And so the passage is le- letting us know that this is, this is what the father has done, that he has adopted us as his child. Now, we, we need, do need to think about ancient world adoptions. There weren't a lot of ancient world adoptions that were out of the goodness of uh, people's hearts. Most adoptions in the ancient world were for the purpose of having an heir, right, to, to, to hand over the inheritance. And you'll, we'll, we'll talk about that at the end of this passage because he does talk about um, inheritance. But here, he lets us know that that's not just what God is doing. He, he's actually doing it out of love. It says in the end of verse uh, 4 there, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. And so it is it's a willful choice motivated by love. Now, for some, this passage is, is troublesome because... Um, what, what are we to make of this idea of God choosing us, adopting us, predestining us? What does it mean that God is, is doing that? Uh, so some Christians would say, well, he's choosing everyone, that he's given grace to everyone. And then out of that grace, each person has a decision whether or not they want to say yes or no to God. Sometimes this is called prevenient grace, that's been delivered to every human being on the planet, and every human being has the same kind of capacity to respond with saving faith to the gospel. Others would say, no, this means it is being given to some and not others, that some are being chosen, some are being adopted, some are being predetermined to uh, be adopted as uh, God's uh, children, and that every Uh, one of those human beings that is chosen is going to respond in faith. Sometimes this is called saving grace or irresistible uh, grace. Now, both views are acceptable inside the Christian faith and inside Ridgetop Church, okay? And uh, those are two big categories. There's a lot of other smaller categories that we could talk about. And if you want to talk about it, we're going to go to Lazarus after this, and we can have a big discussion um, about it. But because of this passage and others, including the unworthiness of Israel and the choosing by God of Israel, has convinced me that God chooses some and not others. That his choosing, his predetermining, his adopting is specific to individual uh, human beings. While this is troublesome and can be confusing, um, I believe that it this belief can also increase your appreciation for the blessings that God has given you. So blessing number one would be that believing that God chooses some and not others makes your salvation 
personal. If you're a Christian, it makes your salvation personal. That God the Father, in love, has chosen you. He has predetermined you. He's adopted you. He didn't choose predetermined, adopt kind of a salvation system and say, hey, anybody interested? He actually adopted you. It's not like he walked into the, uh, uh, the orphanage of spiritually alienated humans and said, anybody interested? He went up to particular orphans and said, I want to adopt you. I put my love on you. Now, um, this is sometimes called the particularity of salvation. And it can be an incredible uh, increase, increasing of appreciation <laughs> of God's love for the saved Christian. Blessing two is the belief that God chooses, uh, that from the, the belief that God chooses some and not others, uh, confirms that our salvation is ultimately from God. It's ultimately from God and not us. That if God chose and predestined and adopted me, you, before the foundation of the world, that relationship is not ultimately caused by us. Right? This is part of what we're reading in this passage. And when you, you, you think about, well, didn't I use my mind and my emotions and my will to come to faith in Christ? Absolutely. Yes. But those things were secondary. And what was primary was God. Right? That what, what, rests, what, what you rest on when you wake up in the morning regarding your salvation is not whether or not you chose right, but that God chose you. And that's what you lean on. That's what you rest on. That, that's what gives you assurance that you are a child of God. That you were not the ultimate cause. But that God was the ultimate cause of your salvation. Um, if, you, if you genuinely believe that God is the ultimate cause of your salvation, again, it stokes your heart of gratitude for God and what He has done to adopt you. It's also a great encouragement when you're struggling to believe. When you're struggling to believe and you're like, I'm not feeling how I should feel and I'm not thinking how I should feel, how I should think. Like what you're resting on is you. And what you want to do is go back to this, this foundational truth that God has saved you. He has chosen you. He has adopted you. You rest on that. And it, it increases our appreciation for what God has done for us. That blessing of particularity, that blessing of causality um, is helpful to understand the blessings of God. Jesus seems to share this view, okay? Um, this, was, this was just some passages from Matthew that I've been reading in my devotion. So Matthew 11, verse 25, at that time Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus is talking about this hiding and giving eyes to see. He says something similar in a couple of chapters later, Matthew 13, but blessed are your eyes. Right? Blessed are your eyes. Not just eyes in general, your eyes. For they see, your ears for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see 
and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And then Matthew 16, when he's having a conversation with the disciples, and he's saying, um, who do people say that I am? And so Peter pipes up, and he says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answers him, blessed. See that? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Right? You see Jesus talking in this way, that God, his Father, is revealing these things. He's opening eyes, opening ears to the gospel. So this belief one that's in this uh, list of blessings here is that God the Father has blessed us by lovingly choosing, predetermining, adopting us as his beloved children. Now we get to the Son. This helps us understand kind of belief category number two. Um, this passage has already been hinting that Jesus plays a critical role in delivering the blessing of adoption from God the Father. Already we've, we've heard this in the scripture, right? Who has blessed us in Christ? It's talking about the Father has blessed us in Christ. Uh, the Father has chosen us in him. Who's him? It's Jesus. For the adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. He has blessed us in the beloved. Who's the beloved? It's Jesus. And so already we're seeing that, that the Father's adoption is somehow being accomplished in and through the Son, right? And this is what we opened up with the, the triune God, the Trinity. The, the, these persons of the Trinity, they're, they're working um, together. And so uh, already we're seeing that in the passage. But then in the rest of the passage, you see these uh, phrases, this phrase, in Him, three times at least. And this is talking about Jesus, right? So verse 7, it says, in Him, we have redemption through His blood. In verse 11, in him we have obtained an inheritance. Verse 13, in him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the in him? It's Jesus, right? This is woven all through this passage of, that, that, that this is being accomplished in and through Jesus. Now, how is it that uh, this is happening, right? So let's look at the first in him. Verse 7, in him, he says, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses. That's a mouthful right there, right? He's saying through Jesus, we have redemption. Redemption means buying someone out of slavery, right? So this is, this is what he's saying, that in him, in Jesus, has been made a purchase of us out of slavery. Well, what, what did he use to make the payment? Blood, right? Payment that was made to accomplish the redemption, now, why would he say blood? That's kind of weird. Like, what, what is it about this blood thing? Christians always singing about blood, talking about blood. Well, d definitely in the ancient world, blood equals your life. And we even say lifeblood sometimes, the lifeblood of the organization, that kind of thing. Um, but, but he's saying Jesus paid his life in order to redeem us out of our slavery, that the sacrificial death that, 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 that Jesus died is redeeming us. And, and what is it redeeming us for? What are we in slavery? What, what, what's going on? Why, why, do, why do we need this? And then the next part, forgiveness of our trespasses. We're in slavery, not because someone kidnapped us and put us into slavery, but because we've sinned. We've, we've committed trespasses. And trespasses are the worst sin of all because they're a known law that you've broken. It wasn't like, oops, I made a mistake. 
It was like, sign says, no trespassing. And we're like, I'm going to step right across the line. And he's saying, Jesus' death is forgiving us even of that. Not just mistakes, but actual trespassing, crossing known boundaries that God has put up for us. And so we could have never made that payment because that sin, that trespass had been against an infinite God. And so it it needed an infinite payment. No amount of of working hard or saying I'm sorry, nothing we could do could fulfill an infinite payment. So God the Son, infinite God, offered an infinite payment with His life. And when He did that, then that made a way for us to have our sins paid for and for us to not only be rescued out of slavery, but then brought into a new identity as children of God. This is the blessing that the Son is giving us. And again, why did the the Father do this? Now, we've already heard one reason, because He loves, right? He loves us. This is why He's offered the Son as a redemption price. But but here, there's another reason. According to the riches there at the end of verse 7, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us. There's another reason why He's doing it. He's, He's gracious. He's full of grace. So he's loving, he's gracious, um, and what is grace? It's giving us something that we don't deserve. It's good stuff that we don't deserve. And so he's saying, this is the kind of, of God who is offering this to us, is one who loves us and is full of grace. But he's also doing it because he's wise. So look at verse, into verse 8, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. So God the Father is not only displaying his love and his grace, but his wisdom. Think about what he's pulling off through the giving of Christ to pay the redemption price. He he is pulling off a comprehensive plan to restore the cosmos and us as part of that cosmos. Pretty impressive. And so this, this wisdom of this comprehensive thing that God is doing uh, to repair the comprehensively destroyed cosmos that sin has destroyed is part of his, what, what, what is motivating him. One way to think about this is Paul is like zooming in and he's zooming out. He's zooming in in a real personal way and then he's zooming out in a real cosmic way. He wants you to see both. He wants you to marvel at what God the Father is doing through the Son. He starts cosmic, right? He's saying in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Wow, that's, that's cosmic. Like we don't even have creation yet. We have God making a plan here for the, 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 before there's even a planet. And that foundation of the world, that's literally the Greek word cosmos. Then he zooms in. Uh, close up to see God's love being magnificently displayed in his choosing, his predestinating, his adopting of single solitary sinners like you and me. Then he zooms back out on a cosmic level where Christ is taking the entire cosmos and he's putting it back together through his death on the cross. It's marvelous. 
It keeps us zooming in and zooming out in verse 11 and kind of sums up some of what he's saying there. In verse 11, he says, In him we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. He talks about this future restoration of all things, that God is working all things according to his will. What does he mean by all things? He means all things, everything, the entire cosmos. He's working toward a plan of restoring and reunifying. Uh, And at the same time, part of that reunifying and restoring in the cosmos is to give an inheritance to those he loves, those he has adopted. And so we talked earlier about this adoption idea in the ancient world. It was usually tied to an inheritance. The family needed an heir to take the inheritance and continue on to the next generation. And so this is probably a prominent part of this understanding of adoption in this passage because of the ancient world context. They were being given a guaranteed inheritance. Now, you may be saying, well, sign me up, right? I want some of that. And indeed, you should. Um, So how do you access this? Well, from the earlier conversation, you might think, well, I don't have to do anything. If I'm chosen, I'm chosen. If I'm adopted, I'm adopted. But that's not the case. This is not how the Apostle Paul talks about this. Here uh, to the Ephesians in verse 13, he says, In him, there's that in him again, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So he's saying, how do you access this? Well, you hear the gospel, the good news about Jesus, that he's redeemed you by giving his life to forgive you of your sins, to reconcile you with the Father. You you hear that message, that good news, and you respond with saving faith. Like, wait, 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 wait. I I thought you said that uh, you're a Christian because you're you're chosen, um, but but what you're saying, I'm a Christian because I've responded in faith? The answer is yes. Yes. It's both, right? It's both. Um, listen to how Paul describes this both-and dynamic to the, to the Thessalonians in, the, in 1 Thessalonians 1. He says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came, not, uh, came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So here Paul, he's showing up in Thessalonica, he's preaching the gospel, people respond in faith. He's not thinking, man, I did an awesome job. I did a sweet job of doing doing that gospel presentation. Did you see that, Timothy? Oh, look at all those people responding. He's like, they're chosen. They're adopted. And when they heard that gospel, they responded with saving faith. It's both. And we're blessed by God the Father, who through the, the redemptive work, of God the Son is comprehensively making all things new, including us, right? Making sinners like us into saints by grace and through faith. You say, well, how, how, do, how do I know this is true? How, how do I know that I am a child of God? Well, this, this brings us to the third belief, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. I just read this, but I'll read it again so that you see the the Holy Spirit part, verse 13, in him, talking about Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, 
who is the guarantee of your inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, God the Holy Spirit, has, he has many roles in the life of a Christian, um, but I'm going to stick to what Paul's drawing attention to here. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee. It's a guarantee of every saint's future inheritance. It's a down payment. Another way to think about it is it's earnest money. Earnest money is a non-refundable down payment that cannot be retrieved if the deal goes bad. It proves if you enter into a deal and you put down earnest money that you are doing this in earnest. You're serious about this deal. I'm so serious about this deal. I want to put earnest money down, and if it goes bad, it's your money. It's not my money anymore. This is what he's describing in terms of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit placed in the the Christian's heart is earnest money. It's a non-refundable down payment. And he's letting these adopted children know there's nothing that's going to change your adoption. Now, Now, there's some bookends of assurance that are in this long sentence. We started off with God, the Father, before the foundations of the world, choosing, predetermining, adopting. And now on the, on the other end, we've got the Holy Spirit dwelling in the Christian's heart as a down payment to guarantee. And so what, what Paul wants to, to make sure that the Ephesians and us know is that we are assured in our identity as children of God, as saints. It is an unshakable identity. We're going to need that. Because there's going to be days when we're shook. We're shook to the core. And when we get to that core, there's going to be an identity there. And it's going to be as an adopted son or daughter of God. And Paul wants to make sure that gets in place before he talks about anything else. Before he talks about church life or moral living or marriage, in any of it. Which he's going to talk about all that stuff. And it's all important. But he wants to make sure that we have this solid understanding of our identity, adopted by the Father and and dwelt by the Spirit, who is a non-refundable guarantee. Now, what's the response that is called forth from us to these truths? Well, one is to believe. To believe. And so if you're not yet a Christian, I want to encourage you to believe to trust in, to put your faith in what Christ has done for you to redeem you from your slavery to sin and pay the price so that you can be forgiven of that sin, even transgressions that were knowingly done against God and against others, that that grace is so lavished upon the sinner that we can be forgiven for that kind and every other kind of sin. Or to, at the very least, begin to explore, to grab a a book at the back table there that that, that tells you more about the Christian faith, or have a conversation with a friend that's in the room, or talk to me later, or to to, to begin to explore this identity that is being offered (laughs) to receive by grace and through faith. And yes, if you do believe and you do exercise saving faith uh, this morning, it will be an indicator that you are adopted by God. And you will be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 
You won't go on a probationary period where he's like, well, we'll see how you do. You do some good stuff, and I'll, I'll, give, the, I'll give you the Holy Spirit. No, deposit guaranteeing, non-refundable, dwelling in the heart of the baby Christian who's just become uh, a believer. So, to believe. Now, as Christians, we need to be reminded. We need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves. So, we need to be called to believe, too. And Paul is writing to Christians, I would say for the most part, in Ephesus, and he's reminding them, this is who you are. This is what God the Father has done for you, through God the Son, by the power of God the Spirit. So the call is to believe. And then the call is to bless, to bless God. And what does that mean? It means to praise Him. I mean, what else could we do? <laughs> you know, he, this is how you bless God. And you can see it woven into this passage, right? He starts off by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Right? He's praising, Paul, the Apostle Paul is praising God, making much of God, ascribing ultimate worth to God. In verse 6, he says, to the praise of his glorious grace. Another acknowledgement of praise. Then verse 12 so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Yet again, more praise. And then in verse 14, to the praise of his glory. So this is another reason why God's doing what God's doing, right? God chooses, predestinates, he is adopting, he's doing that. Why? Because he loves us. He's doing that because he's full of grace. He's doing that because he is full of wisdom. And he's doing that so that we would then turn back and praise him, make much of him because of all that he's done and the the blessings that we have received. And so what Paul is trying to, to do before us is to make us into some good doxologists, right? Some of you are biologists or uh, other ologists, you're studying a particular uh, subject. Every Christian is to be a doxologist, right? To see and to study the glory of God. And then as you see and you study the glory of God and who He is and what He's done, to then respond back to Him with praise, to bless God. We're reminded of the glory of God as we have in this passage. Uh, in, in the work of Christ, we're reminded in this table, right? That God the Son, on the night in which he was betrayed, the night before his death, he took bread. And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples saying, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He's letting them know that what he is going to do on that next day is going to be the gateway in to knowing the true God. And in offering fellowship at the table, it it was highly uh, symbolic of being in right relationship with someone if you're at their table. And so he's he's saying, come to the table of God. You're in right relationship. And the only way that that's going to be possible is by his body broken that next day. In the same way, he took the cup, and after he blessed the cup, he gave it to them, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for you and for many 
for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. Jesus is being very clear. He's not just dying as kind of an example to say, well, you should lay your life down for others, although you should. He's saying, I'm dying as a sacrifice for sin. And he makes it very clear in that moment as he says, he's offering his, his, his shed blood that, that next day in order to forgive us of our even transgressions. And so we see uh, the glory of, of, of the Father sending the Son, the Son accomplishing this great salvation that's then applied by the Spirit in our hearts right? every time we come to the table. And so if you are a Christ follower, we welcome you to the table. We welcome you to enjoy this fellowship with God the Father, through God the Son, by God the Spirit. Um, if you're not yet a Christian, we're encouraging you to take Christ by faith this morning. If not now, maybe later. Let's have a conversation about it. Let's talk about it. Let's explore some of the scriptures in the Bible. Maybe read one of those books back there that might be a help to you. But if you're not yet a Christian, we're going to ask you not to come up and take the bread and the cup. This is a clear signifier of one who has put their faith in Christ and what he's done for them. And so um, we don't do that to be mean. We're doing that because this, we want the, to, for this to mean what it means, which is Christ's followers and uh, that they've received Christ by faith. And this is a way to uh, reenact that every, every week and be reminded of that. All right? So let's pray, and then we get started. You have blessed us. And God, we're not, we're not just talking about roof over our head and food to eat or education or jobs, although this, those things also come from your hand. But Lord, we're praising you for the thing we needed most and could never have met on our own to be brought in relationship with you as your sons and daughters. And Lord, we acknowledge the, the, the expensiveness of the price that was paid, an infinite cost through the death of your son. As we take this bread and we take this cup, and we pray that you and the power of your spirit would work during this time. Lord, I don't, I don't understand at all uh, how you do this while we take this bread and cup, but I do know that you work. And so I pray that you'd be working through your word and then through this taking of the bread and the cup. And we pray, pray blessing over it and pray that you would bless us as we receive it. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If uh, you're going to take communion with us, uh, let me tell you how to do this. You stand in the middle here in a line and you come to me. I'll give you a piece of bread and then go to Steve. He'll give you a cup and you can take that bread and cup back to your seat. And at your own pace, you can pray and think about what you're hearing and respond to God in faith. And take it when you're ready. You don't have to wait for me to say, okay, now it's time to go. You, you can just take it when you're ready. And then uh, after that, we'll sing a couple of songs and we'll send you out.